No one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. We have a market power and it's the power to say no. They, they put all these words on these flies and it means nothing. It's, it's, it's garbage. We're all going to die! Doctors are gaslighting patients. You keep silent then this is what's going to happen. And they'll make us sign. I would rather paper cut my eyelids than have an incident. <laughs> <laughs> we are one people, one flag, one Australia. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, joined by Adam Zara. Back again tonight. This is the double header this weekend. How was last night's episode for you, Adam? Uh, last night's episode was really good, Stephen. I think um, making the comparison between the Yes campaign or the referendum and the Battle of Britain was an interesting concept, and there were certainly some parallels towards it, wasn't there? Yes, and uh, we had a lot of comments in the at the end saying that they really loved uh, having Richard on. Someone even said, "Bring Richard back again." So a star is born, I think. I think so. He's a he's a he's a he's a genuine guy, and he's a pretty good character as well. The old Richard. We've met him a few times. Um, around the traps, um, but uh, yeah, he's um, he's a good guy and had a def- definitely a lot to say about the topic. Yeah, it was a fun episode for me. It was just I, I love anything World War Two history, so it was interesting to uh, to speak to you guys about it last night. But this one, this one tonight, this episode tonight, I think is going to be equally as interesting because we're going to delve into not just Bitcoin but money itself. Uh, this is something I've wanted to talk about for a long time now, and uh, and. We, I better let everyone know that we're live streaming on Facebook uh, and YouTube. You can comment live there. We're also coming uh, live on Rumble. Unfortunately, you, you can comment there, but we won't see it. But if you do want to call in live, I'll put, the, I'll put the link in the chat soon. You can click on the link and you can come on and ask us a question, ask our special guests a question and contribute to the conversation. We always love to hear people ring in and Richard was one of those people and hey he got his own his own <laughs> interview <Very> out <laughs> right and you can also uh, uh, support us if you choose on uh, buy me a coffee uh, you can head over to there uh, I'll put the link for that in the chat as well if you want to support what Adam and I do we're not uh, you know norm we, we do this for free but if you would like to uh, to chip in we're, you know, we're not going to say no. We, we, we would love to get some support, so that would be fantastic if you could do that. But on tonight's episode, we have Jamie Coots. Now, Jamie is a crypto market strategist. Uh, he's got 25 years of experience in the financial industry working at Bloomberg and at hedge funds, and he actually set up the crypto research project for Bloomberg, Bloomberg Intelligence. So uh, he's, a, he's a notable expert on all things Bitcoin. Jamie how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, awesome to have you on. And it's like out of the past and into the future with Bitcoin. So we were talking about World War II last night, and now we're talking about um, how money's going to work in the future. Yeah, well, some things, some things change, but some things change the same. So we talk mm. about money. I mean, even in the new this new iteration, which we're moving into, um, all the old concepts still hold. Mm, okay. So um, the question I've always heard about Bitcoin is what is Bitcoin? But I would like to, instead of asking that, ask you what is money? So we just take money for granted. We just see, have you know plastic notes and we just automatically think, oh, well, that's money. But what is money really? Um, so really, I think the best way, one of the best ways that you can think about money is that it's really a ledger. 
okay? It is a ledger which keeps track of transactions and who owns what. And really over time we've had two major forms of money and both of these forms of money have coexisted at the same time in different formats. And the first type of money uh, really is credit money. Okay, so back in the day, um, if you go back to some of the various earliest records, I think it's Sumerian and Babylonian times, you'll see that there's tablets that are essentially uh, record-keeping for transactions of barter that's taken place in the society or the civilization at that point. And really before the next form of money came along, which was commodity money, Barter was really the way in which goods and services were exchanged and the ledger that was kept by the society kept track of who owes what and who, and who, and who owns what. Um, now, the problem with that kind of ledger or that kind of money is that once you start getting a complex civilization um, and more desires and wants from the people in that society, um, it's very hard to do barter between these parties. So society decided to move towards um, a type of money that could be exchangeable um, for all goods and services. And, you know, that needed, that kind of money traditionally was a commodity of some sort. And there's been, you know, hundreds of different iterations throughout the world of what type of commodity has formed money um, for different civilizations. And ultimately, as commodities, as the type of commodity improves or the technology really improves, then certain monies phase out of existence and other monies ascend to becoming sort of the preeminent or the dominant form of money in the society. But that's the way I sort of think about it. But at the same time as commodity money, you've also still got credit money. So even when we were on a gold standard, there were there was basically, you know, Credit, credit-based ledger. So I don't know if we, we need to go into that right now and sort of talk about it, but essentially those two forms of money are still today the dominant forms of, of um, exchange, although you could claim, you could say that really uh, we are in a credit money world because gold, which has served as the most effective commodity money over century or millennia, um, has been almost demonetized, meaning it, ha- it plays a less significant role than it did under the gold standard, obviously. But as we sort of have this discussion, we'll soon sort of work out that gold has never gone away because it has properties that serve a very unique purpose um, as, a, as a money. And in fact, it's starting to make a comeback yeah, well, I I think uh, I'm I'm heavy into gold and silver as well. I think it's a, I mean, it's all. I, I worked at the bank, uh, the Commonwealth Bank, a long time ago, and they always taught us to diversify your money. No, don't just keep everything in the one form. Don't keep it all in in stocks, or don't keep it all in property. Don't keep it in gold and silver. Diversify uh, amongst all those different areas because one can go up, one can go down, and you need to be able to ride all the different waves. But if we if we look at money. Uh, specifically, what are the properties of money? Uh, you know, what what makes money? What, what like I guess, why do we need money? Well, you know, money solves the the what they call in like economic wonkish terms the double coincidence of wants, right? So if you hear an economist say that, just slap him, 
because what it actually just means in simple terms is that in barter systems, you may be a you may be a, a, a cattle raiser or a cattle farmer, and I may make shoes, and you may not need shoes, and so for us to do trade, it's very difficult. So we have to put faith in something else, and usually that's a commodity, which is another sort of wonkish term, is the most saleable commodity. Um, and what saleable means is that it will be recognised and accepted throughout the community, throughout the civilization, because it has certain unique properties or certain distinct properties which make it agreeable as a form of money. So what are those characteristics or traits? Um, you know, one of the things is it has to be durable. So if you look at other types of money over time, um, if you think about in the case of, um, you know, the early forms of metallic monies, whether it was copper, um, you know, they didn't last as long, they wore down, they rusted. And so obviously silver and gold, because of their durability factor, became sort of more dominant. But even in some cultures um, where, you know, in the very early civilizations, they would use agriculture, they would use um, grain, but that would obviously not last many seasons after the harvest. So as sort of these, these functionalities came into being, people started to understand what makes better money. Um, the other aspect is really portability or the ability to transfer that money. So if you're, again, it's sort of somewhat um, related to durability, um, but it also could be related to the weight. Um, so, you know, certain, you know, the, the Easter Island civilization used the rye stones, these big um, boulders, and obviously they weren't very portable. Um, it took a lot of effort. So they, you know, that was a, you know, a limiting factor. But the, you know, there's about 10 or different, you know, 10 or so characteristics. The one I really want to touch upon is scarcity, right? So, one of the biggest problems with um, many of the early monies was that either they could be inflated by people who had technological prowess, right, So, or other civilizations came along with better forms of money and were able to basically, in, in, the old, in, you know, in the today's terms, print more of it. So classic examples of this were, you know, when um, the, the British were sort of colonizing parts of Africa and and some of the civilizations there or the, the tribes and the groups were using um, shells or beads. And back in England, they had processing plants now where they're starting to develop sort of, you know, artificial or uh, acrylics and various things. They brought that into the community. They made a lot more of them. And they suddenly basically inflated the currency of the local people. And what they did was they, and that enabled them to come in with this fake money or this newly printed money, buy the real assets and actually devalue the currency that the local people were using. So what ended up happening was that they lost most of their possessions for a you know a terrible form of money, and the real valuable stuff was actually then owned by the by the new incumbents. And that really is, it comes down to technology. So money is technology. It transmits or transfers information. So every single iteration of money that we've seen in civilization, which has never been static, although some have lasted for hundreds of thousands of years, every time there is a major technological breakthrough, money moves with that sort of iteration of technology. And so, you know, the, one of the, I think, the aspects which was never really a problem until modern times is that money also needs to be censorship resistant, 
So gold is effectively censorship resistant up until the point of the early sort of 1900s when the US government used by force, by threat of arrest, to actually confiscate the gold. But gold for the first time was really a money that any of the citizens could own in their possession. It wasn't someone else's liability or it wasn't a IOU from someone else. If you had the gold, then you had wealth. And up until really that occurrence in in 1930s, it was censorship resistant. But by that stage, governments had grown so large and they were able to enact more force on 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 the electorate, on their people, that we saw the first instance of confiscation of a physical asset, a non-bearer asset, which just means non-bearer, if you hear this term, just means that it's no one else's liability. It's like not an IOU, not like a, a, a government bond is an IOU. And so, you know, there's been all these technological innovations over time which have changed money, and we are moving into the next sort of iteration of that with um, cryptocurrencies and, you know, heaven forbid, CBDCs, which do not contain the properties of what Bitcoins contains, but they have piggybacked or hijacked the technology and the innovation that Bitcoin has provided to sort of hoodwink the public into thinking that it's this fantastic technological innovation when it's really just lipstick on a pig. <laughs> That's what my, that was going to be one of my questions, and probably it's appropriate now. So obviously CBC is centralised banking cryptocurrency, yeah? And that would central be, bank digital currency, yeah, yeah, and that's made, and that's basically from the money changes. So that's basically your Rothschilds controlling the new technology of money, right? So they're trying to get grips on. Basically, they've they've hedged, look, they've they've got all the gold, they own all the money that we print, and then now what happens is they're trying to they see that the technology is going into digital currency, so they're trying to hijack that as well. Is that correct? So, I mean, we probably need to talk about Bitcoin first just before we sort of go into that because the, the CBDCs never would have even appeared on the scene, as you rightly pointed out, if the private sector hadn't innovated and created new types of money, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin being the first. And I think it's really important for this discussion as well that we do do make the distinction between Bitcoin and everything else in the crypto um, asset class, if you will. So like Ethereum and things like that? Yeah, like Ethereum, like basically everything else. Um, It needs to be separated and it needs to be looked at through an entirely different lens because if, if today's conversation is really about money, then Bitcoin stands apart from every other cryptocurrency because of the unique characteristics that it has in the same way as gold stands apart from other forms of commodity money in the past, whether it be, you know, tobacco or furs or whatever the early um, you know, colonists used in, in you know, North America and, and in Canada, um, 1600s, 1700s or wherever. So that's, the, that's just the important distinction. And then from there you can sort of talk about this new central bank digital currency aspect. I think another, I mean, if we are going to talk about Bitcoin, one of the concerns with Bitcoin or one of the questions that come up is what gives its, what gives Bitcoin its value? Like it, it, it's just 
Why is it worth in, anything? It's out in the cloud somewhere. People don't even really understand. It's not even tangible. But, How do you compare but, it to anything? It's not like gold where you can actually get a hunk of it if you found it. Or, but we've or, had all different forms of money yeah. throughout the past. We've even had, you've mentioned some of them, seashells and furs. We've even had money tally stick. sticks. Yeah, um, tally sticks. So, yeah, so if I'm able to speak. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just excited. <laughs> so what? So yeah. the way I understand it, if you have money, so if we pick up a $50 note, essentially it's just plastic and it's not worth anything. But what gives it its worth, among other things, is the government says you need this to pay your taxes. So instantly, there's a is a worth attributed to that piece of plastic. In the case of Bitcoin, what gives Bitcoin its value, and or does it need something to come along to to give it its value? So if the government turned around and said, I know, is it Ecuador or one of those? Um, yeah, with that they've made it it's the, the um, legal tender in that country, so straight away it's got value. People know it's the legal tender of the country. It already it has it has a value. Mm. Does Bitcoin need that to happen? Look, uh, well, no, because it's got a market cap of seven hundred billion as of today, without anyone enforcing it. Right. So what El Salvador did is they made it optional to use Bitcoin as well as the US dollar because the US dollar was their national currency legal tender um, and they just get, um, added Bitcoin as an option. So this, this network slash money, because it is they're synonymous and they're the same at the same time, this is, this is basically started from the free market, bottom-up, grassroots with no institutional help Without a without a central party dictating the terms of who and who and who cannot use it, and at one point it was worth about 1.2 trillion. It's off its all-time highs. It's about 800 back on the it's back on the its ascendancy again after a bear market that it always experiences every four years. And that we can talk about the aspects of that. That's really what I do as a strategist and as a researcher. But this is the so to really answer the question is like firstly. The market has already said it has value. It is trading at thirty-five thousand dollars per, or thirty-five thousand US dollars currently. Um, so that in, in a free market is telling you something. All money is subjective, so it's all somewhat of an illusion, right? Because your inference or your subjectivity, uh, you know points you towards certain things that you prefer over other things. You may be into, um, you know, collecting cars or someone else may be into paintings or whatever other form of, um, you know, uh, precious asset and that's your and that's your preference and you derive value from that. It's the same with money. But there are distinct characteristics which I mentioned and so what gives Bitcoin its value? So Bitcoin has solved one of the greatest problems that we have, which is how can we exchange value without trusting a middleman, without a central party? And this was the breakthrough that happened not in 2009 when they when he wrote the white paper. This was decades and decades of research that no one knows about, that only certain people know about, like people who are really into this geeky stuff, that really was Technological breakthrough after technological breakthrough after technological breakthrough, and then someone put them all together and created the proof-of-work consensus blockchain called Bitcoin. We don't know who that person is, and quite frankly, anyone who's involved in the space 
doesn't want to know because it's the uniqueness of Bitcoin is that it was born into this world without knowing who was the original person and that person left the network and is not controlled or had anything to do with the network ever since and it has organically grown into the most decentralized currency in the world and if you rank it based on trading volumes, number 11th most traded currency in the world. So I do do have every government or central banker or supranational body talking it down, first joking about it, laughing about it, then criticizing it, and then trying to attack it. So you've said a couple, you know, you said a whole bunch of things there, but two conflict with me that I I guess you need to explain a little bit more. Firstly, you said that someone's created it. No one knows who it is. No one, know, no one wants to know who created it. But you also said it had a, a cap. So people are mining it now, but eventually it will get to a certain level where you can't mine it anymore, and that's that's the cap. Well, if no one's – well, who's controlling it now then? If someone's created it and then walked away and said, okay, bye-bye, who's in control of how many Bitcoin can be created? I mean, can't someone just come along and say, oh, well, let's just – Let's just print more now. Like, well, yeah, let's just, create more. Let's mine more. Like, who who's in control of the system? How does that work? Yeah. So it's it's. I always struggle. I still struggle today to be able to convey this in a really clear way. Bitcoin is code. It is software. You opt in or you opt out to use it. There are millions of people running the software around the world, and that software code has certain rules. Now, one of the things that Bitcoin solved for is this concept of digital scarcity. There'll only be 21 million, right? Now, if you think about it, that is one of the cornerstones of what gives it value because everything else in our financial system is not scarce. The alternative monetary system is a a perpetual printing machine by people in privileged positions that create more money for themselves and for their and for their cohort of vested interests, which constantly devalues the currency that we have to work for. And so there is essentially this massive growing um, uh, inequality in the system, and that is because we are using a currency that is purposely being devalued, and we are losing purchasing power. So the idea behind Bitcoin is why would you ever want to inflate it? It would destroy the value of it. So by consensus, everyone comes to agree to run the software. The software says every four years, well, every block, new currency is issued into the ecosystem. And this is going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole about mining and stuff. So I'll try to keep this very high level and we can talk about that in a minute. But the scarcity point is so critical to understand because it's the antithesis of everything that we have in the fiat money system today. So the consensus, everyone opts in. It's completely voluntary. The code says every new block, which there are transactions that people are using the network, they will um, submit transactions, and those transactions will be included in a block, and that block gets added or those transactions gets added to the blockchain every 10 minutes, and because miners run very intense algorithmic um, processes using specialised machines, 
the algorithm, the code, the software, whatever you want to call it, programmatically issues new coins to the miners for doing that work. So what is it backed by? It's backed by energy. Gold is backed by energy. You have to go do the work and dig it up. And because it costs so much money to do that, you sell the gold into the market and then the market buys it. So the miners don't hoard gold. They can't afford to. Their process is to make, their, their objective is to make a profit on gold mining. And so to keep their operations going, they don't hoard the gold. And miners, Bitcoin miners don't hoard Bitcoin. Some of them own some of it, but it's rather insignificant in terms of the total supply. So what gives money value? I believe the scarcity aspect is critical. And the only way you can have scarcity is if someone does work to get the asset or to get their monetary unit. In the old world, that's digging for a commodity. In the new world, it's math. And so why won't there ever be 21? Why won't there be any more than 21 million? The reason I own Bitcoin is because of that hard cap. If someone tries, and we can get into how they could do this, it's like basically a nation state couldn't even take over the Bitcoin network. Now, it is too large. It is multiple the size of all the Google computers in the world. It is the most, it's the largest supercomputer in terms of the processing power dedicated to mining. And so the miners are incentivized to keep the rules. The nodes that run the software are incentivized to only follow the, the blockchain that, that maintains the rules. I only want to own the asset if it maintains the rules because the moment anything was to change with the code, it would lose its scarcity factor. How could that happen? How could someone sort of change the rules? Well, you'd have to, you'd have to try and take over 51% of the mining of the mining or the what we call hash rate, which is basically just saying the computing power. Now, I've already said that the amount of compute power, I can't remember how much it is, like it's, well, I mean, it's like 421 exahash, but in terms of the size versus the supercomputers in the world, it's multiple times. Now, theoretically, China or America could go and try and buy all the mining equipment or take the go to the suppliers of the mining equipment and buy everything for the next 10 years and build up enough mining hardware, put that on the network and try and take it over and tinker with the rules. If they did that, everyone would see it coming. You could see it coming straight away. You could see it through the mining. You could see it through the supply chains. You could see it through the price change. So it's this unbelievably elegant and masterful game theory at play which ensures that that will never happen. I mean, I shouldn't say never. There's always a chance that something could happen. And that's why when you look at anything when it comes to finance, you've got to think of risk-reward risk and how big the position should be that you're investing, like, that you're taking a stake in, in a particular investment. So it's incredibly difficult and it's very, very unlikely. This has already been tried, by the way. This happened in 2017. There are now four different Bitcoin blockchains or derivatives where they tried to, they, they, fought, they changed the rules. 
and they went off in a different direction. So some miners went in this direction, other miners went in this direction, and the whole market cap of those alternative chains is less than 1% of Bitcoin, meaning the whole community didn't communicate, didn't get on the phone with one another. They just followed the protocol which had the soundest, which had the best attributes for money, had the most processing power on it, and all those other chains basically splintered, and splintered off and they're worth essentially nothing today. So the attacks have come and they failed. The next, the only sort of, um, I think, feasible attack could come from a nation state. It would have to be as big as US or China. And by doing it, everyone could see it coming. Well, everyone will be able to see it coming, I should say. So I'm still a bit worried about the centralised bank, bank and, you know, obviously I've watched a few now different documentaries with, um, you know, Money Masters and stuff like that, you know, and, like, to me it doesn't, I mean, we know that wars are waged over money and gold and all these kind of things and we know, I guess, that well, again, a bit more rabbit hole kind of worthy that, you know, it's all controlled by, like, you know, one group of people and that they'll do anything to keep, their power. Mm. So how do, how do we know that, like, I mean, we don't know, but what's stopping them from doing it? If they control everything anyway and control, all, you know, basically they own the money and they control the money, they control everything, why, why can't they just jump in and take over? Take over what, the, the Bitcoin network? Yeah. Well, for the same reasons as I just said, they would they have to buy, they would have to basically control the GDP of, a, of an entire country, devote all of those resources to buying hardware, to buy the miners, to get on the network. And as soon as they started even trying that, everyone would see it coming. And so it, it would just mean that the, 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 block, the blockchain would move away from those miners in a different direction. So, I mean, it would hurt the network if an attack was mounted, but it wouldn't kill it. It's it's incredibly anti-fragile and it takes a lot of like it it really does take a lot of work to understand it this is bitcoin is not a topic that you can read in one hour and decide okay i'm buying it unless you're a computer science or unless you're a very um you know computer science orientated person or if you're a monetary historian and you're seeing this for the first time um it's just it's very complex to understand, but essentially the there is this anti-fragile quality to it, and yes, it's they can attempt it. They just don't. Th- I just don't think they'll be successful. And so, the, as the 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 other aspect is that as adoption grows. So let's talk about how how many people use it today. So currently, there's about fifty million addresses that own some Bitcoin in it. Now, each address could either represent, um, you know, multiple people or um, one person could control multiple addresses. So we don't really know how many people globally own Bitcoin. But if you look at, say, Coinbase, their monthly, well, sorry, their, yeah, the monthly active users is 50 to 60 million. Most of them probably have some Bitcoin. They only have a couple of addresses. They only have a couple of wallets that they hold or their Bitcoin in. So what you're looking at is probably something close to 200 million people based on best estimates. 
Now, the time to try and crush Bitcoin was 10 years ago. As this thing filters through the global economy, as people start to adopt it, integrate it into their systems, it does become harder. It's not impossible for the for there to be a try to censorship the chain, but this is the unique quality. If you're in Ukraine and the bombs start flying and you're trying to get across the border, you will not be able to take your gold. Either the local Ukrainians or the Polish on the other side, they'll take it. But with Bitcoin, you've got your passcode in your head and you can now move globally with wealth and that is something that has never been able to be done before. The other thing you could do is transfer it to your cousin living in South Africa, right? Now, the, the hardest problem with explaining Bitcoin to folks in places like Australia is that we have it too good. Like we don't understand the challenges of inflation, although we just started to get a taste of it. Yeah. We don't understand the, the challenges of censorship, although we're just getting a taste of it. We don't get a sense of what it is to basically have, um, you know, constant threat of being robbed or, you know, your life under, under threat. But we're just starting to get a taste of it in some ways. So these Bitcoin solves the, peop- the problems for the people who are in the most dire straits. But people who understand the technology can also see it as a great asset to make money from. And there's that whole other aspect, which I don't have any issue with. We live in a capitalist society. But the reason you're able to make money in it is because it's serving a purpose. It has utility for people who don't have access to a bank account, who can't buy gold, right, who don't have any credit and are under threat of, you know, from the warlord or the government whatever the case may be, to actually own something that is the best performing asset that outperforms even gold, at least in a short history, and that they can take with them in their head without the fear of confiscation. And so you've got now, like four years ago, it would have been a joke to mention Bitcoin on the presidential campaign. Now you have senators, congressmen who own Bitcoin, who are lobbying to protect Bitcoin, and you have three candidates, one of which is a serious contender in Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is promoting Bitcoin and the sovereignty of individuals to have a censorship-resistant form of money. The game has changed. They're still probably going to try and um, curtail its growth, but with BlackRock and all these other major institutions now putting up their hand and, and applying to have a Bitcoin ETF, it is really the white flag. And so I think that this has gone past the point now of, of complete shutdown. They're going to probably try and curb around the edges and um, regulate in such a way that the banks get some sort of stake in this new economy. But Bitcoin in and of itself is the cat's out of the bag. Um, we've got a comment here from Tony. She said, let's play devil's advocate, anyone. And that's usually my role on this on this show, playing devil's advocate. You said uh, that you can't take your, your gold across a border, right? But, well, you could. But it get, could get uh, stolen. Okay. Yeah, it's, saying, say, go back to those qualities earlier, like it's um, portability, right? You own a lot of gold. That's very heavy. Hmm. Number two, it's easy to steal. Like people see the gold. 
right? It's just obvious things like that. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not impossible and it gets done all the time. It's like it is being done as we speak. People are moving gold across borders, smuggling and whatnot. It's just very difficult. But we're, we're facing two issues. The, one, one, the first one's war, um, the potential of war, where you could see electrical grids go down or just moving towards re- renewable energy where we could have blackouts. Well, that, you know, if we have a blackout and you can't access your computer, how are you going to trade Bitcoin or access your Bitcoin? If you have no access to your computer or the energy grid, you are not worrying about your Bitcoin. You're worrying about food and water. Yeah. So it's the same. And and what about your bank account? So you won't be able to access your credit card, your bank, it, the whole thing. Like it, that's sort of a, that's, I hear that argument a lot. And, you know, until I thought about it, it was like, oh, wait a minute. Actually, you know, we're in bigger trouble if that's, if that's the case. And again, like, whereas your bank account can be wiped to zero, they don't like you. Or there's a malfunction in the database that backs the fiat currency, which, let's face it, governments and banks are the least technologically advanced and there are problems all the time. So their back ends are an absolute disaster. They are looking at blockchain and they know that that is the future and that means innovating their own ledgers with blockchain, immutable ledgers, and it will also mean a lot of job cuts because there is not a need for all these people within banks. But let's just talk about, I think you made a couple of points there. I just wanted to try and sneak these points in. You mentioned war and you mentioned energy. And let's just talk about war for a second and think about Bitcoin and what it offers. Bitcoin can't be printed. It can't be printed into existence. The last 100 years of the fiat money order well, the central bank, let's just say central banking started in 1913 with the Federal Reserve, although it goes back to the 1600s with Bank of Sweden, Bank of Amsterdam, and then Bank of England. Hmm. But let's just say in the modern era, 1913, um, we still had gold. We were still on a gold standard back then, but we had fractional reserve banking. So basically, there was there were, banks were able to create more and more claims on the underlying gold. Now, that system of creating paper claims or fake IOUs on the underlying collateral, which was gold, has set off the most destructive 100 years of bloodshed that we've ever seen. And the reason for that is that before fractional reserve banking and before definitely before fiat, which was 1971 when we went off the gold standard altogether, although we were pretty much off the gold standard even by 1971, but let's just say we were still on it, In the olden days, a government to wage war only had two means, right? So they had to either tax the population or issue more debt. Now, in a system where, you know, gold is the collateral, then if you don't have any gold, no one's going to lend you any money. And if the population doesn't believe in the war, they will say no to their taxes. Mm. The, the technological revolution that was really started with fiat banking and, and fractional reserve banking was that in World War I, everyone went off the gold standard and printed their money. And there was this really not well-known 
historical fact which surfaced in 2017 in the FT. The FT issued a retraction or an admission of a lie that they printed in their paper 100 years earlier, and the lie was this. In the World War I, Britain went off the gold standard because they needed to print money to fund the war effort. Yep. And so the population, despite us thinking that World War, that the British were, were running into the, the battlefield in France because they wanted to defend freedom or whatever the rubbish was that they were being sold at that point in time, they didn't. They weren't able to even push through the taxation increases. So what did they have to do to raise the money? They had to raise it through debt, so they issued bonds. And what they did was... They told everyone that investors, i.e. the British people, bought the bonds as if it was a, um, an acceptance or a, or an, or a um, um, so what I'm looking for, a um, endorsement of the war effort, right? The British people are buying our bonds, so we raise the money so we can go buy armaments and we can build out the war machine and fund the war. They lied. They just basically created on their ledger they moved the bonds on their own books and they faked the whole thing. So they would never have been able to perpetrate the war if they were held to the gold standard. So the ability to print money is the ability to exercise war, unfettered war. And if you're a stronger economy like Britain was then, they were the superpower, they were able to get away with it. The FT, the Financial Times, knew that and they issued the lie in their paper, and then 100 years later, that's how things work, right? They lie, they don't admit guilt, and we make sure everyone's dead by then, and then they say, oops, uh, we said something wrong in 1917. But that kicked off governments, the, the, the blueprint for governments to wage war. They went off the gold standard, they were off the gold standard now, they just print money, and what they do is they devalue the citizens' money. And so we work hard. You guys work extremely hard. I see you guys doing your podcasts, running for um, funding your own campaigns. That money is worth significantly less tomorrow, next month, and the year after because our government prints money or our central banks and our banking system creates new money all the time. And so inflation, even though they say it's 7%, which is high, it's actually we're inflating. Australia inflates its money supply 10% on average year on year every year which means that our money loses value in about four years. Sorry, it loses 50% of its value in four years when you compound at 10%. And so when they say it's 7% and you go, wait a minute, my education's up 20% or the, um, you know, the health insurance is up like you know, 17% this year, how does it get to 7 Well, they, <clears throat> they are manipulating the consumer price index and always have so that... When you go to your employer and say, I want a 7% pay raise, that's CPI this year, and they say, you've worked hard, that's fair enough, you get it, you're still poorer because actual real inflation is 12, 13, 14, 15, 20%. And so Bitcoin is a money that can't be printed in the same way as gold cannot be printed. And if we move to a more honest monetary system, then the ability for governments to try and do this sort of thing is harder and harder, which obviously is the counter-argument. Why would governments ever want to do that? Well, I'm making um, a, I'm sort of making a, 
my argument, which may be wrong, that the adoption is starting to get to a point where it's starting to win the votes and the minds of people inside our electorates, our elected leaders, and it's getting to the point now where BlackRock and all these companies want to make money from it, which is kind of enshrining it in the future. And so, therefore, it's less likely that that, that it could get squashed, even though realistically it can't because it's, it's in cyberspace and you own the password and government doesn't matter what they say, can't take that from you. How would... How would well, this, I've got two questions. First things first, I just want to end. I want you to answer um, uh, Georgina Reed's question here. What do the letters fiat mean, uh, i.e., fiat money? Do the letters mean anything, or is this word the actual name used for the money currently in use in our society? Where does this word come from? Um, well, to me, it's a card. I think it's. I think it's Latin, and, and it means by decree. So when we say fiat money, it is by decree, meaning the government has said so. It doesn't. Nothing's backed by it. So fiat money only really came into being when we moved off the gold standard. So what gave money its value? By decree. The emperor said it's worth something, so therefore it is. And that's why it got labelled with the term fiat, if my historical memory is correct. Okay, because the money, because the reason why, you know, I would exchange goods and services, you know, like if I went and did a service call for $150 and I would take $150 cash off somebody, um, that means that I'm accepting that the work that I've done, that that money is going to be valued to that work that I've done. So it's only a, it's a good faith gesture. It just means that that's just what I, I just agree that that's the exchange. I, I could, like you were saying before, if I really wanted, you know, 150 beans to feed my family that night, I could go and do the same amount of work and accept that for as currency because that's what I wanted and and that's what basically money is, as my understanding yeah. of it. Yeah. Okay, my, my second question, I'm sorry, uh, but I'll ask. So um, this is a bit of a sci-fi question. So in um, in Star Trek, they don't have currency. Do you think that they might be using something like a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency? I never got into uh, Star Trek. I thought it was, um, you know, in Star Wars, didn't they use credits, um, yeah. Empire credits? Yes. Right. So they were using a credit money, right? The, the Empire had the ledger. And they were issuing the currency, and everyone else was forced to use it. So, being the dominant force in the in the galaxy, they got control of the printing press of the Empire credits, right? And no doubt that they used that that leverage to wage war against the rebels. Yeah. You know, can we see the parallels? So, I don't know about Star Trek. I just well, that, pulled out a Star I mean, Wars reference because I couldn't answer the Star Trek one, but but that's okay because you can see if people who do follow either series or both, um, Star Trek. Earth is basically a peaceful planet because everyone's using maybe this Bitcoin decentralized system. Whereas if you have a look in Star Wars, it, it, it's war torn. All the galaxy, all the planets in the galaxy are basically at war from using a credit system. So that could explain or could be a parallel as into why we have using a credit system, why we've got so many wars going all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's sorry. That's just my sci-fi thing for the night. So I thought I'd just throw that in no, there. That's just a good. In case. No, no, I like it. <laughs> yeah, cool. I, like it. I, I want to dig into. You've, you've mentioned fiat currency and you've mentioned uh, fractional reserve banking. So my my uh, my understanding of history. This all goes back to the original goldsmiths. And what would happen is people would come to the goldsmiths and say, "Can you please keep my gold in your vault?" Because they had the biggest vaults in the city. 
So, you know, you, you mentioned before, once you start to accumulate a lot of gold, it's heavy. You, you'd have nowhere to store it. You, you, you're scared someone's going to break into your house and, and take it from you. So people would keep it in the, in the vaults of the goldsmith, and then the goldsmith would issue you a piece of paper to say you've kept this amount of gold in the vault, and that was the first paper money that came along. But the second thing that the goldsmith started to realise that was that a lot of people would keep their gold in the vault and they wouldn't come back and get it for a very long time. So the goldsmith started lending that out, and that led to fractional reserve banking. So can you understand, Can you uh, maybe explain what fractional reserve banking is? Yeah, I mean, that's a good summary. So it was just the idea that you can make money off other people's money. And so that was a, you know, that was a technological um, revolution within, within banking that, um, you know, look, there, there are, that in and of itself also spurred a lot of creativity and increased the velocity of money as well. And that the ability to have money move through the economy fast actually is a very good characteristic and trait. And that's what fractional reserve banking did. The problem is that you're trusting humans not to fuck it up. And we know they do time yes. and time again. We've had more bank failures this year in terms of assets, in terms of the size of those banks than we did in the GFC, and hardly anyone has talked about it. And they have they, they stopped that from being a full-on banking collapse by, let's call it money printing, but and I won't go into the technicalities, but essentially something similar. So you know, they this system is so fragile and complex. So look, the the idea that um, you can create money out of nothing has not necessarily one hundred percent downside, right? It depends on where you are in time in history. Who is the one creating the money? You might get lucky. But the reason why Bitcoin is a really good alternative and a hedge is that we know that really when it comes to money, it incentivizes the worst kind of behavior. And so there isn't a set of 12 gray-haired men and women sitting around a board table every two months Deciding what the most important commodity, what the most, what the price of the most important commodity is. The most important commodity in our economy is the price of money, the interest rate. And so they think they know better than the free market as to what that interest rate is. But they have vested interests to protect. So their interests are not aligned with ours. And they are suppressing, they're doing things to the interest rate to get their agenda which is basically devalue us. That's simply what they're doing. So the banks can make more money from doing what the goldsmiths do or did, which was take your deposits and lend it out. So if you think that you have money in the bank, you, you should actually go read the terms and conditions of every single bank. You are an unsecured creditor. That is not the moment you deposit in your ComBank um, website, app or whatever, that money is theirs. They can cancel it. Now, of course, there's legalese and there's regulations around they're not doing certain things. But if things got really bad, that money is theirs. They'll take it. They'll bail it in. They'll, you know, cover debt. They'll cover their losses in some other part of their portfolio. And so but that, that's really not why that different. And that's right. 
So, so, sorry, Jamie. That's why people say if everyone was to go to the bank all at once and say, can I withdraw all my money, the bank wouldn't be able to do it because it doesn't have it. It's already lent it out to make money on it already. So it's using your money to invest. And the way that I understand fractional reserve banking to be, the bank can take, say, you've got $100,000 in the bank. The bank can then take that and lend it out at 10 times the amount of that so they can lend out a, a, million. a million dollars to someone else yeah, and then charge, charge them 5% interest. But they're actually, instead of making 5% interest, they're making 50% interest because they're, they're, they're making the money on the $100,000 that they're fractionally reserved lent out. Is that, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, it's something like that. I mean, it's at least like sort of 9 to 10. But, I mean, the system is so rehypothecated now with um, the claims on the the money in the system is, you know, something like maybe 15 to 20 times levered, right? So it's it's less than – it's much less than 10%. It's probably closer to 5% back in the entire system. Um, you know, that's that's the amount of leverage there there is. Um, so it doesn't take a lot of losses, of a bank's balance sheet to wipe out the depositors. And we will be told by our central bank that don't worry, we've got your back. We'll just print more of the money and give it to the banks. When they do that, you, your deposit is saved. You haven't lost your money in the bank, but the value of the currency that you hold is devalued. And so this ongoing inflation just keeps going and going and going. And you know, think about this, guys, like when our parents were growing up or when they were having us, I don't know how old you are, I'm pretty old, um, one one parent could support the family of a, you know, lowish to middle income, right, yep. family household. Can't do that now. That is a clear sign that the money is not working for us. So people are looking at alternatives. They are looking at precious metals. They're looking at collectibles, anything that is scarce, right, that can't be printed into oblivion. And so I'm not saying that Bitcoin is the only avenue, but people have to understand that saving in a bank puts your money at risk from confiscation. The worst of all, well, not worst of all, but also on top of that, is that the interest rate they give you, right, is less than, than the real inflation rate and it's less than what they're lending out. You get 4.5%, 5%, you think that's great because it was only 2% a year ago, right? Inflation's 10%. You're down negative 5%, right? So that is the trick. When you're looking at the returns of your portfolio and you look at the Australian share portfolio that you have, it's up 10% this year, including dividends. That's great. Okay, great. You've just basically kept your head above water, because the inflation rate is about 10%. So I'm using like numbers that may not be accurate. The point is yeah. the nominal returns on your investment, go and compare it to what the real inflation rate is, and that is your real return. So you've got to be making above what the inflation rate is to stay ahead. Now, the people that do that are the people that have got a lot of financial assets because and, and have invested in scarce stuff like good quality re, um, real estate, um, precious metals, collectibles, because when they're scarce... And the value and the money is being debased, or it's abundant, it's being inflated. Then the value of those scarce assets go up a lot more than the inflation rate. And so the rich people get richer. The people on the lower socioeconomic ladder, they don't have financial assets, 
They can't afford to buy a house because of all the money printing. And not only that, most of their salary is spent on essential items, food, shelter. And these are the things that are going up the most. And one of the tricks, and, you know, I've worked with economists and it is infuriating to hear them explain to me why they do the things that they do to the basket of goods that defines the inflation rate. And either it's just willful ignorance or something, some other sort of malicious reason as far as I'm concerned, but the way they tinker with the basket to make it artificially low is, you know, is frightening. And most CPI, what they do is they exclude the things that really matter to, the, to people, which is food and energy. You take out food and energy, right, what are you left with? A lot of things that are deflating in the economy, like TVs and, you know, electronics. So we haven't really talked about this. We've got the monetary system, which is by design constantly debasing us and being inflated so that the whole system can, can, can stop from, being, from collapsing, right? Because if, if things de- deflate, like if the value of our assets went down, all the banks would be bankrupt. Yeah. So they have to do this now to try and just keep the house of cards. But the other cross current that people don't, well, people, some people are aware of is that technology makes things cheaper. So if we were living in a world where we were using gold or Bitcoin or some other monetary unit that wasn't inflated and technology was allowed to do its thing, everything would be getting cheaper. But they are constantly making things more expensive through regulations and through monetary debasement. So the things in the basket that are keeping it suppressed are electronics, you know, things where the free market is really dictating the terms. Everything else that's sort of like, you know, a cartel-type industry, whether it's airline tickets, supermarkets, banks, you know, a couple of companies own these industries. The costs keep going up and up, healthcare. So, you know, for the lower socioeconomic that, you know, that really don't have a lot of financial assets and spend a lot of their money on food, they're getting crushed and it's getting worse and worse for them and they don't understand why. Well, I'm one of those people in that boat. So is there hope? Is there hope for people like myself in this situation where, you know, just the cost of living now is just like crushing crushing weight? Um, you know, is Bitcoin the alternative? Is that something that, like, I should really learn about and do to protect myself from that? Like, because you really raised a good point. Like, I didn't know that the banks could just take my money. So, you know, we, we're, we're taught and told to save our money and put money in the bank and, you know, it's there for a rainy day, whatnot. But as you said, and I can see it, and I've seen it literally, it is like the fuel tank on my little Audi that I have. It literally, the, the it is going down to empty, right? And it, basically because of the, devaluation, the, the, the devaluing effect that our economy does on our money. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, let me just make a small point about the, the banks as well, because I'll, I'm sure I'll get torn to shred for not being technically accurate here. There is an insurance on deposits up to a certain point. Okay, so so effectively, if a bank was to go under, deposits up to, I can't remember how much it is in Australia, but in the US, it's up to 200000 Most people don't have that much money in the bank, but technically, that is what you're insured up to in the US, and it's probably something around that here. But the point is that where does that insurance money come from? Hmm. Who funds that? Hmm. 
It's either the banks paying into the insurance fund to protect themselves, and what do the banks do if they have a cost? They pass on that cost to us. So we're paying for it somehow, yeah. right? Or it's partly government-funded, which means it's paid for by us. And so it's this left-hand, right-hand thing with everything the government does in economic policy. Oh, you're getting free stuff. There's no such thing as free stuff. Insurance is paid for. It sounds like a good thing, and it is. But just be understanding that you're funding that insurance program somehow and at worst if if you know it doesn't the losses aren't covered by the insurance the central bank will step in print more australian dollars and so you're paying for it through, through inflation anyway and so everything they cloud in terms of the language they use the cryptic converse, the cryptic um you know terminology at the end of the day nothing is free it all comes from the taxpayer whether it's through our taxes or whether it's through the inflation that we have to incur because some other people have control of the money printer to fund the programs that we don't necessarily vote on. So That's what I could never understand when I when I worked at the Commonwealth Bank, I would see people's bank accounts, and it's scary how how few how, uh, you know how few many dollars they've got actually in their accounts. A lot of people don't have a lot of money, but. Um, Especially the older people, they would come in, they would have, you know, two hundred thousand dollars in their term deposit, and they would think that that was a fantastic thing. And I would just think that two hundred thousand dollars is just being deflated every year, every year. And, you know, you know, two hundred thousand dollars might have seemed like a lot of money back in two thousand and five, but it doesn't seem like a lot of money these days. Uh, one of the one of the things we hear about gold is that it's a hedge against inflation. Can you apply the same to Bitcoin? Yeah, it's um, this is a bit of a tricky one because again, there's different types of inflation. So there's the inflation that we get that we hear about day in day out, which is CPI inflation, right? It's just the the basket of goods they they, they pick. They say the inflation rate for this, and therefore that means that's the inflation rate for the economy. Well, your inflation rate is different from my inflation rate, right? I may choose to shop at organic store, and you may choose to shop at Audi. And so there's different inflation right there. And if you're not paying, you're not paying as much for food as I am, then we're so this whole thing of like a, a, a universal inflation rate is ludicrous. But they will never tell you that either. So inflation is on a spectrum, right? And it's worse for lower income than it is for higher income. So <clears throat> when inflation started to rise after what they did in COVID, so look, I mean, what they did was insane. And I said straight away, you know, to my colleagues at the time, we are going to see inflation because they have just almost doubled the money supply. The, the central bank printed bank reserves and gave them to the banks, and then they increased the money supply through the banking system at about 30% over the space of two years. And, like, you, Economics 101 said that inflation would, would arise out of that. And I had economists who refused, to, who refused to accept that early on and then had to to flip around and it's like but this is what they teach us in day one of economics and i sadly did an economics degree i'm sorry um i had to take 20 years of unlearning that rubbish so get to your point or get to your question um when inflation rose bitcoin gold and stocks all fell and so everyone said hey this isn't a very good inflation hedge so what happens when inflation goes up the central banks are forced to tighten up so they'll increase the interest rate, they'll stop their money printing uh, programs, and that contracts the economy. And so everything fell, Bitcoin fell, stocks fell. Now, 
they're going to have to, they can't do this for longer. You can already see them start to pivot and they're going to have to go back to easy money at some point. And so for that year and a half, Bitcoin fell, gold, everything fell, right? So it wasn't very good inflation hedge. Understand that the debasement is the constant and it's going to be interrupted by, sh- by short interludes, but the economy is so indebted that they can't allow it to basically, they can't allow that debt to collapse. So they'll have to keep um, inflating. And so therefore, over the long term, Bitcoin and gold, as they have already over the last 10 years, will do better than everything else. So it doesn't go up in a straight line. So when things get tight, like interest rates go up, no asset does well. Even treasury, even bonds, like this is this was like the first time in like 100 years that bonds fell in the same year as equities. And that is not supposed to happen. And that tells you that no one trusts anything. So the idea behind it is not to think about it as a trade, but to think about it as a debasement hedge or a monetary inflation, inflation hedge. And there's going to be up years and down years. But in Bitcoin's 13, 14 years, it's had three down years, right? And they've been pretty wicked down years right, in terms of the percentage returns. So the other way to think about it in terms of a lens is what's my position size? So this is not financial advice. I don't have a financial advisory license, blah, blah, blah. The way I think about it is I definitely shouldn't have zero, but what's the percentage that I should actually own? Well, that's a risk-reward question that every individual needs to answer themselves, but I don't think the answer is zero. Okay. Well, that's what they teach you at the bank. Uh, it's all about risk reward. So if you want to make a lot of money, then you have to have more risk. Whereas if you want to, if you want to be safe, or just keep all your money in cash and and just get the interest that the bank will give you. So I mean, there, there does have to be some sort of risk reward ratio. Um, I guess. I guess my my question. Well, let me, let, me, let me just put that into context then. So that's a really good point. So if you want to sort of start doing mental, sort of mental um, projections or gymnastics around like what is the risk-reward for Bitcoin, then think about it in terms of what is the size of the entire monetary base globally? It's about $300 trillion, right? So Bitcoin has already gotten to, it got to a trillion two years ago and it's on its way there again in my view very quickly. Um, so how much of the market share? Think about it that way. So it's less than 1%. No, it's about 0.3% of the global market share of money. If you include stocks, real estate, treasuries, bonds, cash, 0.3%. And so maybe you could get to the same market cap as gold. Gold's about 10 trillion, 10 to 12 trillion, right? So that is at least a 10x from here. And so what can you afford to lose is really the ultimate question, right? Is it 1%? Is it 0.1%? For some people, is it 10%? And then think about, okay, so what is the potentiality of the asset? Well, this is an asset that's basically got to where it has despite everything against it. And, you know, it's already nearly as large as the largest companies in the world like Apple. So it seems to have durability. That's how you sort of should think about it. 
Um, but any position that makes you, because th- it's wickedly volatile, right? And that's what a free market is. So, you know, it's not manipulated. So it is volatile. So whatever you can sleep at night with, um, that's probably how you should sort of figure out like where to fit your position size within it. And how, and how do you, like, so people talk about, you know, becoming a Bitcoin millionaire and things like that, right? So how, how does it translate into, because Bitcoin's not widely accepted everywhere, right? Like you can't, I can't go and buy a car with Bitcoin unless a dealership takes Bitcoin as, 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 as money. So, right. right so like, I don't, I don't know if there's any dealerships or anything like that at the moment that do that. Or I can't go and buy a house with Bitcoin at the moment because the real estates don't take it as money. So how do you understand, is, that, is it all investing in the hope that one day it will become a currency? Well, the market has already determined that it's a currency, right? So it, tra- it trades on, it, it, it's the, it could be more now. It could be in the top 10, right? You think about it. We have meetings called G7, G20, where the most important, Bitcoin is already the most, more traded currency than half of the G20. The market has already said it's a currency. It's a store of value. So what, what, what makes the money? I mean, it should have answered this stuff. A money is a medium of exchange. So you and I today could exchange value over Bitcoin and I could go to, I can pay with Bitcoin in like Shopify and all these merchants. Is it everywhere? No. Is it somewhere? Yeah. Is it like super accessible as a payment mechanism? Not really, but it's only been around 14 years. A new money that has not been issued by the state is suddenly now accepted as a medium of exchange through lots of different locations globally, like our, a whole two countries in the world now accept as legal tender. So it's kind of nascent, right? The other thing is, does it perform its duty as a store of value? Like if your money is being devalued, then it's not a store of value. Like Australian dollars is not a store of value. Mm-hmm. US dollars, even though it's the best fiat currency, is not a store of value. So gold is a really decent store of value. It has outperformed gold. The other thing is, it is is it a unit of account? Do people go around quoting Bitcoin like, I want to buy a car, well, that's worth one and a half Bitcoin? No. So it doesn't really have that third attribute. But, you know, that's probably the least important because fiat's not going anywhere. That is going to be the unit of account for the rest of our lives, most likely. But Bitcoin is meeting two of those other um, those uh, qualities of money and I wouldn't be using my Bitcoin to pay for regular day items. It's got too much of the store of value properties that I wouldn't want to part with it for my grocery transactions. Even though the new technology called Lightning, which I'm not going to go into, does allow you to do fast transactions in the Bitcoin network, faster than Visa, final settlement, all this stuff. But I still don't use it in that capacity, although some people do, because it's just a better form of money. I'll use my fiat for the for when I get petrol and groceries, but I won't keep my fiat. I won't keep a lot of fiat in the bank because it's a rubbish. It's rubbish money. That's, that's that was my next thing I was going to say because you know, like as I said, I'm old school and I've been taught to put money in the bank to save, right? So I'm almost better off. I know this is not financial advice, but just from what I'm the gist of what I'm getting from you today is like I would almost be better off pulling out, let's say, half my savings. And putting it into Bitcoin because it's savings, it's money. If it like, I understand that there's risk, so I forgot. But but I was watching a, a documentary that uh, 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 
a, a link that you sent to us to watch. And even if the even if Bitcoin does particularly drop, it doesn't mean it's going to go to zero. It doesn't mean it's worthless because what happens is just like any investment or something like that, you just have to wait for it to increase in value again. So I could almost take half my savings out, put it into Bitcoin, and then kind of like get real value on 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 growth compared to what the bank is doing with it, where it's always devaluing my money. Well, yeah, you've got two monies. One's being devalued. The other one has is has got a hard cap, and we haven't talked about the inflation. Bitcoin's inflation rate currently is around 2.5%. And so it goes through this process every four years where the inflation rate gets cut in half. So half I've talked about scarcity, but I haven't really talked about the technical aspect. Why is it scarce? Well, there's only 21 million. That 21, the, the last Bitcoin gets issued in 100 years' time, around 2140. And so the inflation rate, the annual inflation rate of how many new coins are issued to the miners and the miners go and sell those coins and we go to an exchange and buy them or whatever, that inflation rate is around sort of two. So it's a little bit more inflationary than gold because gold inflates at about 1.5%. Like that's how much new gold comes into the global ecosystem every year, about 1.5%, 2%. In 2024... The inflation rate gets cut in half, so it's going to be less inflationary than than gold. And then every four years, it gets cut in half again. So it goes from like you know one to 0.5 to 0.25. So it is the when I say it's the antithesis of fiat, that the, the code is set up to be exactly the antithesis. It's saying we think that money that gets more and more scarce over time will outperform money that gets more and more abundant over time. And I tend to agree. Yeah. Well, that's how it works. That's why land gets more expensive because none of it's getting made again. So I get that. So, all right. So with this um, halvening thing that's happening in 2024, and that means it gets that, – does that mean that Bitcoin becomes more scarce for a year? Uh, no, from that point on. So the inflation rate – so at the moment, every new block – which holds all the transactions, they get added to the blockchain every 10 minutes. When a miner wins or when it, the miner who wins the computing math problem to get the, uh, to get the right to add that block receives at currently 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes, right? So it's over $100,000 every 10 minutes. That's been the protocol since the last halving in 2020. In 2024, that gets cut to 3.25 Bitcoin. So it gets halved. So the miners get less. And so that's the kind of the the genius around it. Um, So it actually makes it harder for the miners. So the miners then, you know, the less efficient miners will drop off the network because it's too costly to run the mining equipment. But the wonderful thing about it is that even though that's the case, even though it's gotten harder and harder since the first Bitcoin was mined, the amount of hash power has grown into the, I mean, I wish I had the numbers at my disposal, but like the most, it's the largest computing network that the man has ever seen. All these decentralized miners working together in terms of the computing power, the hardware they're running is absolutely phenomenal. And it's only gone up even though things have gotten harder. And the reason for that is energy. Bitcoin is this thirsty machine. Well, the network is, and Bitcoin miners are this thirsty, insatiable 
um, consumer of energy. And so in order to be profitable, miners have to go find the cheapest energy. And the cheapest energy is usually energy that's stranded, that's abundant but stranded. So what is that? Typically that's using like geothermal, right, or, um, you know, using um, flared gas or using hydro. Yeah. Where the energy producer has so much of it, they can't even sell it back to the grid. So suddenly they've now got this new way to monetize energy and to make more money with Bitcoin miners. So not only that, all these renewable energy projects, which are extremely costly to the taxpayer because they are, by definition, inefficient. Yep. They are low-density energy sources. Bitcoin actually becomes this wonderful adjunct for these renewable projects to produce energy and be a profitable project, which I think is a great thing. I'm not a huge fan of some of these renewable energy projects because it costs us too much money and they're not reliable. Yep. What if we, the taxpayer, didn't have to subsidise all these multinationals building these, these wind farms, these solar farms, that Bitcoin mining could actually fund their development? As long as they weren't destroying our beautiful landscapes, <laughs> which most they are, yes. unless it's a perfect world, or they go and set up these solar panels in the Nullarbor where no one cares, but it costs too much money to transmit the energy back to Sydney or Adelaide, and they can locate Bitcoin mining right next to it. Suddenly, we're monetizing energy that's abundant, i.e. in the sun, and there's no other call for that energy from the grid. And so what we're seeing is this absolute energy transformation globally. We've got countries in the Middle East that have abundant energy, like United Arab Emirates, Omar, Bahrain, who are saying it's a national imperative to have Bitcoin mining located next to their nuclear power plants, their solar plants, not so much their gas. And so what that's doing is that that's giving the government a reimbursement on the investment that they've made into their energy grid because unlike here, over there, they know how to make energy abundant for their people and now they're trying to actually make more money from it because they've got so much of it. It's the opposite here. They're basically strangling us in terms of the energy. And so Bitcoin does provide, not in all instances, not in all energy grids and not in all energy sources, an answer. But in around the world, like, again, four years ago, never would have heard this. All we heard from various parties was that Bitcoin was going to bore the ocean because it was using so much renew so, so much energy 50 percent estimated 50 percent of bitcoin's energy consumption is renewable sources and sustainable sources meaning nuclear and so that whole argument is now transforming for our eyes and i don't think the greenpeace and these activists have uh, know what to do with it because bitcoin is actually becoming their best ally in the in the their aims to decarbonize the grid whether you believe in that as being a smart strategy or not and therefore oh, oh, sorry, yeah, sorry sorry adam um, no, I've, got no, go the, I've got the link in the chat so if anyone wants to call in now is the time i know tony's trying to encourage her husband to jump on but we do have one caller in to ask a question so i'll bring him on quickly paul vallejo g'day paul there paul can you hear us paul 
Bad line. Maybe it's just taking a second to come through. No, he's frozen. All right, I'll, I'll get him to. Nope. Yeah, kick him out and get him to come back in. Try and come back in, Paul. We'll, we'll bring you on. But um, I guess before, um, Jamie, you were speaking about, you know, the fiat system inflating and inflating and inflating. And I've heard the Bitcoin's been described as um, the natural uh, evolution of money. Um, wait, we've just got Paul coming back. Maybe I'll just try this one. Hold on. Here he comes. No, um, he's running. So, is your are you able to do that, Adam? And just um, just kick him out. My my streamyard's running very slowly here. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick you out, Paul. Sorry. Yeah, and then try try again, Paul. And I'll let, we'll we'll get Adam to try and bring you back in because my my system's running very slow. It might be a problem at my end here. Yes, but um, sorry. We're just saying we're just saying that uh, Bitcoin's the the natural evolution of uh, of money. But what it seems that central banks are moving to central um, currencies, central central bank digital currencies, and there's also BRICS that have started up between. Uh, of uh, you know Russia and China and Iran and South South Africa and India, um, is that? I know you said before that Bitcoin stand on stands on its own, and you can't you can't take in any of the other cryptocurrencies out there. Um, did, are they a threat to to Bitcoin, or is that just the way that the natural monetary system is going that we'll see ourselves with central bank digital digital currencies at some stage? Yeah, look, I mean. Um... I wish, I wish it was different. And look, I mean, I don't know whether we, as a citizenry, given our inability to stop much these days, will prevent a central bank digital currency from getting up. I think it's. It feels like at this point, maybe I'm just being pessimistic, and there are other people out there who, um, who don't believe this, and they could be correct. In the U.S., there's been a lot of pushback. So it's not a fait accompli in the U.S. You know, you've got um, DeSantis in Florida creating a law, which is a, you know, no CBDC law. Um, there's a bill, I think, in the Senate that you can't, that the central bank can't bring in a CBDC without sort of um, legislative approval and whatnot. Look, in Australia, the Reserve Bank has already project, oh, sorry, already piloted many different um, CBDC projects with industry, and it's sort of getting it's getting momentum. I fear that it's out of the bag and we'll get them. But let's say you know, let's be optimistic here. If we all went to the streets, we all lobbied our um, respective uh, politicians. Um, you know, maybe there's a chance that we can we can stop it. But it feels inevitable at this at this stage. But essentially, what they are, they are, you know, at the moment, we have digital dollars in our digital bank accounts, controlled by a digital ledger that the bank controls, that rolls up to the ledger that the central bank controls. And really, it's just a slight change of the technology in the background. Um, so the look and feel of it won't be distinctly different for us until 
they start to execute some of the qualities that it has that our current money doesn't. So let me explain that. The reason why they want CBD, the reason why they want to change things, the reason they want to sort of borrow the term cryptocurrency or borrow the technology slightly of blockchain is not because they want decentralized money. It's not because they want censorship business money. It's because they want programmable money. At the moment, they can't get money to do some of the really quirky things that they'd love to be able to do. So let me give you an example of what programmable money would empower them to do. And this comes from the rather large mouth of a rather large central banker from the BIS, who's the head of the BIS. His name is Carstens. And if you look him up, you'll see why I made reference to his um, circumference. Now, he has said it's really the programmable aspect that he is most interested in. Now, what does that mean? So China's already brought in their CBDC. What have they done? So this is not conspiracy theory. This has already been implemented. They can make money come into your bank account and expire if you don't use it within a certain time. Right? So they will claim that that's great. Right? That's how to, in, if the economy is in a slowdown, we want to we inject money into your bank account so you can go and spend and, and therefore, you know, increase economic activity. Well, obviously, there's a downside to that, right? So you've, it expires. So that means that all of your money could potentially expire or be removed or disappear. The other thing is they can trend, they can surveil everything that you do, right? Because it's on a database or a more efficient blockchain or which is essentially just a database. Don't get t- tied up with the, the, the language. It's a database, but it's a more transparent database, not for us, because on Bitcoin, I can see every transaction. That's one of the unique qualities of it. No one controls it. It's transparent. I can't see, Adam, what you've done. I can just see movements, right? So it's, an, it's pseudo-anonymous. Now, what they're doing is basically the same thing as today. They see behind the curtain all the transactions that currently they can't, they can't see because it's too hard to track with cash and with our current digital bank system today. On their blockchain, they'll be able to see everything. And that means with AI, machine learning, they will be able to train it to do certain things, to learn more about what we do, where we go, who we are, and be able to also punish us if we don't meet certain criteria. And they do this in China. So, you know, let's not out-China China with our monetary system. Let's not actually, you know, fall for the trick that this is going to solve issues with sending out stimulus checks in the next pandemic or whatever it is because the central bank of central banks, the Bank of International Settlements, which is this global, opera- global um, organisation with diplomatic immunity, say they want it for surveillance, they say they want it for the programmable features, and we know what that means. Yeah, less freedom for the average average Aussie and average person in the world. Um, Jamie, I've got somebody on the line here, PDS Down Under, so I'm not sure what he's going to ask but or they're going to ask, but we'll um, put them up anyway, okay? Hi, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, good, mate. How are you going? Not too bad. Jamie, you're doing a great job in explaining the fundamentals and the foundation of Bitcoin, really great. Sorry, sorry before you, um, before you go on, PDS, uh, have you got another uh, window open somewhere? We're, here, we're getting a bit of feedback with the, um, with the line. Audio. 
I feel like I'm on radio. I used to hear Alan Jones. Turn the Maybe my wife has got her, her, her yeah, session open. Hey, guys. Yep. It's me. Hey, hang on, Tony. Hi, Tony. Get, get Tony to put it on mute for now. Yeah, put it on mute, Tones. See if that helps. Is it helpful? Right. That's yeah, good. that's great. Uh, there we go. It's so sensitive. She's meters away from me. Um, look, I get, I do get excited when we talk about Bitcoin, the blockchain, things like that. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit in, in the technology world. I do a bit of coding. And I've been in, in uh, I think, uh, Bitcoin since 2017. I've seen the up and downs. I understand the advantages, the disadvantages as well that I can see. I see people are usually fearful when it comes to change. Um, I don't see the all uh, dark side of, you know, um, digital currencies, as most would probably predict. You know, I mean... We entered digital currency when we when we created the the, the uh, credit card. You know, back in the day, it was like, oh, the end is coming because everyone's you know, it's been monitored by their credit card system. So it's fundamentally, it's pretty much the same. I mean, I think it's it's going to go that way. Um, my question is. Um, the, the, the blockchain is a fantastic technology. Uh, we're now looking at people like uh, Block, uh, BlackRock that are fundamentally massive when it comes to investing and controlling assets. Uh, Bitcoin is something that they've never been able to control. Is Are we maybe trading on eggshells when it comes to allowing some, someone like BlackRock access to an asset that's very volatile, still small, still a junior? Um, how do we navigate that that aspect of things? And that's to you, Yeah, look, yeah look, thanks for the question. Um, it, it does feel like it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, but on final analysis... There are going to be some pros and some cons of the traditional investment world getting involved in Bitcoin. Um, so let me talk about, I guess, the you know the the, the negatives, right? Um, without going into sort of too much technical detail, um, the reason why Bitcoin has delivered the returns that it has, it's and is because of its volatility. Like people look at volatility, and I'm sure it sounds like you're a trader and an investor and a tech guy, so you understand volatility. But for most people, they use the term volatility to scare people away. If Bitcoin wasn't so volatile, it would not have delivered the returns that it has. But that volatility over time, as more people adopt it and as more financial institutions move into the space by offering services, integrating with Bitcoin, maybe it's Bitcoin trading facilities or in the case of BlackRock, an ETF, more derivatives type trading around it, that the volatility will come down slowly over time as it becomes more adopted. So that's one of the negatives, but that's quite a few years away. And what they will do is shepherd in millions of users or millions of investors into Bitcoin and, you know, organically into other cryptocurrencies as well. But that is a, you know, that means that your Financial planner, or in the United States, they call them RIAs, um, you know, registered investment advisors. 
They couldn't invest in Bitcoin on behalf of the trillions of assets that they control with their clients because it wasn't in a format which was either regulated or easy for them to access means that they can suddenly start giving their clients access. So when you start to see, you know, 1% of, you know, the portfolio strategic asset allocation strategy of most of these uh, major firms go into Bitcoin, it's going to have a very strong impact on price, not only because it's new new uh, money coming into the asset class, but because Bitcoin is a very because Bitcoin is scarce, it has a multiplier effect on the price. So every new dollar coming into the ecosystem doesn't give Bitcoin a one dollar increase in price. It is a multiple because a lot of the Bitcoin is locked away by people who are not going to sell because they see that as the future of the of the asset class. So every new dollar is going to have a very big impact on the price. Now, I hate talking about the price because that's where people focus on and they just they get, you know, immediately excited and think about like how much money they can make and maybe that's true, maybe I'm wrong and that doesn't turn out. But the negative is that there could be issues with um, ETF providers who play the same sorts of games that banks play at the moment with, you know, holding your deposit, not having your deposits on call because they've lent it out. Now, I'm not saying that's what ETF providers do today. And, like, I, you know, I'm probably speaking out of turn in terms of, like, how impossible that is. I'm just saying that when you invest in a product where you don't own the underlying there is the chance that that could happen. Now, that would be very negative because that would be BlackRock or whoever. You know, there's lots of ETF providers now that are trying to get a, a, an ETF launch. There's, there's an opportunity for them to maybe do something like that. But this is where they will come unstuck in the end because people will sell into the physical and prefer to take the physical if there is any kind of, if there's even a hint of a BlackRock or one of these firms not holding the underlying. And so the same sorts of games that they've been able to play are incredibly hard to do with Bitcoin because of its unique properties. So I overall am very positive about what it means. I don't agree with the political stance of some of these firms or what their agenda is, but I think their motivation is to make money and they're just coming around to seeing that this is an opportunity for them to make money, but they can't manipulate it and they can't do the kinds of things that they can with other assets because it's a bearer asset, right? Like FTX was brought undone because as soon as people knew that they didn't have the Bitcoin, everyone pulled their money out and they went down in a weekend. And so an ETF provider could suffer the same consequences as that. I don't. I really don't think that's going to happen, but that's playing devil's advocate and saying, like, worst-case scenario, yeah, maybe that something like that happens. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the people that own their own Bitcoin and don't invest in an ETF will do better off because they've made that decision to own the asset and be the custodian of their asset. 
be the the top of the ladder. That's the point of the game in every asset in every in every class of business I've ever seen. Or you got to be at the top of the pinnacle. You got to be at the top. Um. Anyway, thank you very much. Um. PDS down under. I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Jamie, for answering his question. We've got another guest. Um. To ask a question. Um. He's a previous. Um. What do you call it? Um. Host on our on our show. Yes. Um, Mr. Paul Vallejo. So, um, PDS down under, I'm removing you and I'm going to put Paul on okay. Here we go. G'day, Paul. How you going, mate? Uh, love, love you guys' work. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. It's great <laughs> to see you um, So on, on the topic that you guys were just talking about, I have a cautionary tale about uh, who is your custodian. Uh, I had some um, money in MF Global, if you remember this from a long time ago. John Corzine. Uh, ex-Senate, ex-presidential candidate and senator from New Jersey, ran MF Global into the ground while MF Global was holding some of my funds, which then they rehypothecated and disappeared in order to cover one of their margin calls. So anytime you have a custodian holding something as opposed to whether you have it in your Bitcoin wallet or you know physical gold versus derivative gold, yeah, that... that um, can be theoretical ownership uh, when the rubber meets the road. Does that sound like about what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So the the interesting thing there, Paul, is that um, because Bitcoin is a transparent blockchain, um, we can see things that we can't see with the likes of MF Global. So you would never, because think of it like this, like every, every money is a ledger. And the revolution or the evolution in money that Bitcoin brought along with several other things like scarcity, digital scarcity, the trustless nature of it, no inter- no um, central counterparty, peer-to-peer transactions is the fact that the transactions or the ledger is public. And so we know that there are 19 million Bitcoin that have been issued and there's only ever going to be 21 million, right? So that's how we get the inflation rate. Now, about 2 million is still left on exchanges. So there's 2 million out there that are basically at risk with public custodians. Mm. So we kind of know the size of the problem. The rest are either in people's uh, cold storage, Mm. right, on their hardware devices, their collaborative storage, um, custodian storage um, uh, uh, facilities, or they're lost. And there's quite a few that are lost, and that's just the way it is. Um, they're never coming back. Um, so we kind of know how much, you know, that all of these different – we know how much Bitcoin every ETF provider has. So if they try to – they usually say an F word here, but I'm not <laughs> – I've probably said it too many already. But if they try to any shenanigans and rehypothecate, it's going to be easier to source. Now – Classic cases that um, recently with Hamas and Israel, Senator Warren, who's on this vendetta to crush crypto, crush Bitcoin, used analytics from a blockchain analytics company to say that Bit- that Hamas had raised, I think, $91 million of Bitcoin. And so that was, that. I mean, they had basically, she had basically lied about what the true number was. And the whole Twitter Paul of Twitter basically was able to fact check her in real time wow, because, because of the, the, the footprints, the fingerprints 
of what they did were on the blockchain and the analytics company even issued saying, hey, listen, we don't endorse what Senator Warren said. It's actually around this much. We can't say for exact, but it's definitely not what she said. And so that kind of transparency we don't get from fiat. Like how much money was raised by Hamas and every terrorist organisation through the fiat system? We know it's about 99% and crypto is about 1%, and we don't even know necessarily how they get it. So Bitcoin solves a lot of the problems that the politicians who are um, who are criticising it claim they want to address. Mm-hmm. So the real well, hypothecation thing is like FTX did it and they collapsed within three years. Um, it'll be a lot harder going forward if people just take custody because there won't be much free-floating Bitcoin to manipulate or to lie about and it's going to leave sort of fingerprints on the blockchain. Can I ask a follow-on question? Um, have you covered, uh, in terms of custodians, uh, the bail-in laws? Uh, like, how, how safe are your, you know, you'd think, well, money in the bank is, is is definitely yours. But I understand that Australia has passed bail-in laws that if the banks get in trouble, they can bail in depositors and turn them into creditors. And I wonder if there's a $250,000 limit to the extent they can't do that. Or, and I'm not sure if that's something that, that any of you guys know about, but it's uh, something I've tried to look into a bit. Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact amount, but Australian deposits are insured up to a certain amount. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, the thing about the insurance is that, um, so firstly, find out what, I, I actually don't know what it is. Um, and I, I'm aware of the bail-in laws, but I'm just, I honestly haven't done the work no, to really speak super confidently about it. But um, even if you say so whatever the insurance amount is, you should never leave more than that in a bank um, because that is that's free for them to take in case of any trouble. But the right. but the um, but the other aspect which I mentioned earlier was that that insurance that covers the banks is money that either they have had to raise by passing on costs to us as customers, mm-hmm. or we as taxpayers have paid into via some facility on the government side or the industry side. So we're effectively funding it anyway. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Paul. Paul. Thanks, Paul. All right. Uh, well, awesome. I guess we're I guess we're at the end now. But um, uh, if anyone else wants to call in, now's your chance. You better jump on quickly because this is the last segment of the show. Now, Jamie, we've been talking about all things Bitcoin and and money. Uh, we haven't talked about governments at all, but we do have we a just final... how bad governments are. Yeah, we have, <laughs> yeah, and how dangerous they could be. But the final segment of the show is build your own fantasy government. Now, the idea of the the task for you is that Jamie, you're in charge of the next Parliament of Australia, and you can choose five or six current politicians, former politicians, dead people, experts in a certain field, whoever it might be, maybe maybe a neighbour or something like that. And these five and five or six people will head up the next government of Australia. You're in charge. Who would you choose? Um, can I make the government only five people and then sack them all, sack the rest of them? Sure. <laughs> if, if you think these five people can do do the whole job, then it's completely up. <laughs> no, we probably need more than five. Um, well, of the current cohort, I'd have to say Malcolm Roberts, Antic, Rennick. Um, of previous, no longer in the parliament, 
You've got Craig Kelly. Um, and the last one, um, I'm probably missing someone out. Oh, Babette, but he's in the Senate. Um, That's okay. I mean, they don't have to be anywhere in particular. They Just whoever you think are, are good leaders, I suppose. Well, they're the only ones fighting for justice around what happened with COVID. And so yep. based on that alone, you get to... Um, yeah, you get to be in my in my fantasy government. Awesome, awesome. Okay. I like all those choices. I like all those politicians that you've mentioned. I think we've if there was a it should be you two guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, prime minister and what do you call it? Deputy prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, you can be the you can be the treasurer, Jamie. No, you interest? can be the economist. What is it? Is a treasurer does the economist start, side of things, doesn't he? Uh, we the treasure, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, we just we need to get as as less um, interference. We need to minimise the interference and let the free markets do their thing. So the Treasury Department, the Central Bank, shrunk considerably. There's a lot of PhDs doing useless work inside the tre- inside the Reserve Bank. Um, they would be better served solving some other problem somewhere else. Yeah. Well, one thing we didn't talk about is uh, is the history of central banks, which is something I would love to speak about, but uh, we'll leave that for another time, Jamie. Uh, if people have really enjoyed your knowledge and insight, like I'm, I'm sure they have enjoyed, how can they follow you and keep up to date with all your work? Yeah, I think the best place is on Twitter. So at Jamie, I've got my handle up there, at Jamie1Coots. Um, I post a lot of crypto-related research um, that's really what my area of speciality these days. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so in either of those two venues. Excellent. Well, awesome. it's been great having you on, Jamie, and it's been a pleasure to speak to you about this topic because um, like many people probably in the comments or viewing that they have no real idea about it, we know we've got to do something. Like I think I know, and I know for the last couple of years, I know I've got to do something because the old way doesn't work. And um, I just think it's it is scary because it is people's work hard for their money and people do like I'm, like everyone like like me like everyone here you know it, that's that's your nest egg and if you you, you know you want to know and have confidence with where you're putting it and that it's going to actually return you know have that value for you, you just don't want to you know excuse the French piss it up against the wall as per se but having it in the bank, I can see it being pissed up the wall. I've got to be honest with you. So I just got to figure out a better way to, do, to, to, to manage my money and, and, and hold on to it. So you've really opened up my eyes and um, you'll see me um, jump onto your Twitter and, and friend you so that I can start seeing some more tips. And um, I look forward to having you on because I really do want to talk about central banking system and, and, and with um, Stephen as well, because uh, Stephen's got me interested in all that as well now. So um, it'd be great to have you back on shortly or in a few well, soon. Well, look, if, uh, you know, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to speak to you guys. I love the discussion and I think uh, you guys are doing a great job with the podcast. I've watched many of the episodes, so I appreciate your work. Well, thank you. Very good. Thanks, Jamie. And if you do want to support us, head over to uh, Buy Me A Coffee. You can chip in there if you if you choose. You don't. You know, we're not putting a gun to your head, but if you do, I know a lot, some people like to support us. So if you do like to support us, head over to Buy Me A Coffee. Share this episode out to everyone. I know a lot of people joined in halfway through. You can go and re-watch it later on, on Rumble. Rumble is probably the best place. Uh, also on YouTube and, and, and Facebook as well. But we do appreciate your company tonight. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.